Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Breakouts, a podcast where we interview extraordinary founders in just under 20 minutes. I'm your host, Akshay Kosla. Now, you'll find many podcasts out there that are two to three hours long and interview these wildly successful founders after they've already made it big. But by that point, the founders are already 5, 10, or even 15 years into their journey. So their insights just aren't as actionable anymore. We're doing things a little bit different. We're interviewing founders that are on the cusp of breaking out so that you can learn the playbooks they're using to build category-defining companies today. And we're doing it in just under 20 minutes. Now, just before we get started, go ahead and follow us on Twitter at The Breakouts Pod, subscribe to this YouTube channel, and join our Discord community for aspiring founders. The link is in the description below. A real quick disclaimer right before we get started. This episode is one of the first few we recorded, so the audio and video quality isn't that great. We're working to improve it so that we can deliver a better podcast experience for you guys. But regardless, the insights in this episode and the entrepreneur that we interviewed are amazing. So definitely still go ahead and give it a listen. And I think that's everything I have for you. So without further ado, here's today's guest. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of The Breakouts. We are privileged here to have Derek Flans-Reich once again to talk to us about strategies, tactics, and hacks that he's used to build his business. Now, as a reminder, Derek is building Ness, which is at the intersection of health tech and fintech. He recently raised a 15.5 million seed round. To get us started, Derek, could you summarize one more time for our listeners who might have missed the first episode what Ness is and what it does? Yeah, sure. We're building health and wellness first credit cards as a wedge into the healthcare space. Uh, so basically think of it as like an Amex for health with big ambitions uh, to eventually uh, align incentives in healthcare uh, between consumers and health plans for the first time. Awesome. Very cool. And to our listeners, if you want to hear a little bit more about the story behind Derek's startup, it's really quite a treat. Please make sure to listen to episode number one. Now, as part of this episode, the way I want to carve it out is we're going to talk about strategies, tactics, and hacks that you've used to build your business. And we're going to split those up into different segments. The first part is going to be about product. We're going to talk about your product strategy a little bit, how you're thinking about what is next for Nest. The second part will be about distribution and acquisition, and I'm sure we're in for a treat there. The third part will be about fundraising, any fundraising advice that you have for early stage founders. And the last part will be about how you think about operationalizing your startup, making it more efficient. You know, if you know me, I'm a bit of a nerd for those kind of things. So I'm excited for that part personally. So to get us started, let's talk a little bit about product. I'm curious, while you were building conviction that this is the problem to solve, that you should actually dive full into it, right? What was your process for building that conviction? Where did you experience the problem? And then in a very strategic way, how did you go about building a high level of conviction that, hey, I 80% know that this is worth trying and now's the time to act on it? Yeah, so as I mentioned in the last, um, as I mentioned in our, our last uh, podcast, um, a lot of the thinking around this business started with my first business, um, where we built this big health and wellness media company called Greatest. And the intention behind that company was to build a brand that uh, talked about health in a healthier way, sort of shaping the narrative around health for the better. Um, There's no denying that no matter how friendly and accessible you make health and wellness, it's very expensive for most people. And so that has really stuck with me. 
Um, and uh, I, uh, about a year and a half ago or so, um, I was kind of, you know, a year and a half after I had sold my last company, uh, and I was starting to feel like myself again. But at the time, I was really mad that health insurance wouldn't pay for me to see a therapist. And so I started to, that kind of set me off around like how, why doesn't health insurance pay for the things that people actually want and society agrees that people need um, that will lead them to be healthier long-term. So that's where sort of the impetus for it all came. Uh, and so we started playing with this idea, trying to dig into why it was that health insurance doesn't pay for this, ultimately concluded we needed to find some form factor to build a long-term relationship with people, not an employer that's like typically now less than three to four years, but something that would stick with people for 30 to 40 years. So we started to go through all these different form factors. We landed on a few that we thought were interesting, uh, and we ended up kind of really getting excited about this notion of the credit card. Um, this was in like high level discussions, right? Essentially with mentors, prior and backers and investors, friends, and people who became co-founders. Um, and uh, then we decided to like put some pen to paper and started to do some good old fashioned customer research. Uh, I am a very big fan of um, customer research. I, I think, um, I think like fundamentally, um, it is not enough to intuitively think what you're building makes sense. Uh, I do think nothing is more important than that intuition. Uh, I do think like if you just ask people what they want, you're, you know, you're going to find maybe uh, very uninteresting, uninnovative solutions. Uh, but we actually did like a formal process over about six months of different um, user interviews. We went through at least three different uh, stages of user interviews with between five and 10 people. And we showed them things and asked them what they thought about it, sort of like high, low fidelity, frankly, mocks increasingly higher fidelity. Um, we did surveys. Um, we like gathered data, talking to experts in the field. Uh, and we came away pretty floored, frankly, by some of the things that we learned. Things like 90% of the people we surveyed and spoke to believed health and wellness was their number one priority or among their top priorities. The willingness of them to switch to a card away from their existing premium cards um, and uh, fundamentally, right, like de-risking, we believe, a lot of sort of our initial sort of beliefs around what we were building. And we learned a lot too. We learned about what would approximate a travel card-like aspirational nature of saving up for this great big trip. Uh, we learned um, what proxies we could find in health and wellness. We learned about how discovery, how important that was to consumers. So really, um, really helpful stuff, that consumer research. That's awesome. So you said you spent around six months on that. I'm curious, there's the qualitative aspect of research and then the quantitative as well, right? On the qualitative side, time is obviously a limiting function in terms of how many people you can interview to and gather that qualitative feedback from. So how do you kind of um, balance the two, right? Like one, interviewing a sizable number of people and gathering quantitative feedback from surveys. What are the thresholds you look for here? Like when is it enough yeah, so we did both. Um, you know, I, I, I think the book Sprint is really helpful. Um, and in that book, they cited a few studies that essentially suggest that there's diminishing returns after you talk to essentially five people. 
Uh, I've definitely found that to be true too. Um, there's very, it's very rare that you'll find out more information. Now the key is you have to really know who your target customer is, or at least have mm. a very good, um, have a, you know, I'm like ultimately major part of my skill set is marketing, and marketing always starts with who your target customer is. And so that was where we started from in some ways. Was like, who are we trying to solve this problem for at first? Uh, and so I think if you really know who your target customer is, then Speaking to five people might be more than enough, honestly. Um, the uh, and then for surveys, I sometimes think like the more the better, but usually like we try to get to a couple hundred, even a hundred is probably fine. I don't honestly think the numbers are so big. It's not. It's less important to have. And again, we did that process repeated at like three different times. We were iterating right the model and and the solution. Um, but yeah, that's like. Um, I think like the numbers matter less than who are you asking and, um, you know, are you really asking questions that are going to like yield you interesting and important answers? I, I think you really uh, hit the nail on the head there. I think the selection process for who you're targeting and seeing how closely that aligns with your target audience is absolutely crucial. Do you have any tips and, for people in terms of how, yeah. how they might do that? Totally. Um, I do think people often forget about the target customer. When I used to teach courses or consult with companies, when I was talking about like how to, to you know, build out your go-to-market strategy and build your brand, it always starts with who that target customer is. And in particular, like trying to get that as specific as possible, like past the point of comfort. People often think they know the answer to that question, but they don't know their name. They don't know what they look like them, like where they live, and, and then it's very hard in the future to meet them where they're at. And so I think that's like, that's a big thing. I think at the beginning, people need to focus on. The second thing is I love Craigslist for building, for recruiting participants for this stuff. What I find is very unhelpful is asking a bunch of friends who they, because that usually yields people like you answering the question. Whereas with Craigslist, you can find just about anyone who's like interested in 30, 50 bucks or whatever to answer some questions. And I find you get a much more diverse level of participation. So one of my like, I like love Craigslist. I use it for all kinds of random stuff when it comes to marketing and um, hiring sometimes. That's really cool. I think that's less talked about, at least from the founders I yeah. chat with. You know, you'll, people will talk about poster on Reddit, and I, I think that's a great point. What happened to Craigslist? There's still a lot of eye, eyeballs there. So yeah, and like normal eyeballs. If you're what you're building is like a thing for nerds like me, then probably Reddit is great. Like, mm. go straight to the Rick and Morty subreddit if you want. But like, um, yeah, I think I think Craigslist. You want to find where people are. But again, it depends on who your target customer is. Very interesting. Now, another question about product. I'm very curious about in terms of product strategy, right? What is like one major objective that you're working towards? Um, and how are you articulating the key components of the strategy behind achieving that objective? And I think what might help set some context here is you mentioned earlier that so far Ness has not launched the product, but you have a wait list. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. So can you share a little bit more statistics about the size of this waitlist? If you are comfortable, if you're not, that's completely okay as well. Yeah, sure. So we, so we did launch a product, the product, mm. and doesn't launch until the end of the year in time for sort of New Year's resolution. That's like the first card. But a few months ago, we actually launched a reward app, mostly as an experiment, again, really to learn sort of 
getting in front of our target customer and seeing where they spend and learning from their spending and whether we can drive more and better spending. We launched that in June or July, and we thought it would just be for a couple hundred people. We've got about 40,000 people on a wait list to get in. It's invite only, and we've wow. got about 3,000 full-time inside the app. They've spent 40-something million, 15 to 20% of that on healthy transactions. We've built up a database, merchant database of nearly 20,000 healthy merchants. In that process, which is like another main reason for it, is we wanted to, like, people can request points so that we can build out a database and know when to reward them. Anyway, it's a long way of saying that we have this wait list for that rewards app. That's been, like, where our focus has been today. We can't share too much information about the credit card, both because, like, we're not sharing it yet, but also because it's heavily regulated, right, when you're launching right. a credit card. So because of that, like, the focus has been on the wait list for this rewards app. And then we're hoping many of the people who are actively engaging and using the rewards app will increasingly let people off that wait list and then also drive them into our credit card once it's public. That makes a lot of sense. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about distribution. If you had to articulate at a high level what your acquisition strategy is and what are the mm -hmm. different channels you're leveraging at the moment, how would you articulate it? I'd say it's so we have three strategies. The first one and like the one that is closest to home is organic. I believe that content is the most cost effective form of marketing and to start a relationship. And so we invested pretty early on in building out a newsletter. We've got an amazing biweekly newsletter called Nessie Sightings that comes out and shares the best products and services, sort of like finds, right? The best up and coming health and wellness products and services. We also have an online publication called The Nessie, and that is like a wire cutter, but for health and wellness news, health and wellness products and services. So like what is the best at-home rowing equipment? What is the best vegetarian meal kit? In-depth, deep, and profound reviews. My whole strategy around content is always to write extraordinary content and not a lot of it. Quality over quantity, that's always worked for me, but takes some time and patience. So organic content first. And we've got social media and a bunch of other stuff. The second is paid, though in part, we call it partnerships. We, uh, that includes influencers and our partner brands and with which we plan to co-market pretty aggressively. So with a brand like, say, a Sweet Green or influencers that we've worked pretty heavily with already, that allows us to sort of give them the app or give them the card and find ways to bring them to their followers or their existing customers. We think that sort of partnership is really important. And also we think it's really the only way now to build a brand. We think paid social, I'm very against paid social and Google, <laughs> frankly, I think it's always, almost always a race to the bottom. And it's, I think a great way to learn and test and experiment. And for some products, there might be a window in which is very profitable, but I don't think that's for very long typically. And then the third is brand. I think brand is actually a big differentiator. And so that can manifest itself in things like events and awareness or stunts even. It can also just be in terms of like literally the visual experience that people have. So that's our three areas is brand, partners, and organic. That's very cool. And I'm sure you've done some kind of calculations here, but between the three channels, right? I think there's probably some loose way to calculate a fully baked CAC on each one. So for example, even mm -hmm. if you're writing content, what is the, the cost of writing that content in terms of time and, and translate it to a dollar value, et cetera? Do you have any idea in terms of which strategies is working the best for you guys right now? 
Well, so we haven't launched the product yet, right? So we don't have like, I don't have an answer for you in terms of like what the CAC is for each of them and how it all blends together, right? Like we don't, we don't know that yet. Um, mm. I will say that influencers has been tremendously effective for us so far in the testing that we've done. And I think of organic as a way to long-term bring down CAC through evergreen sort of like, it kind of sets a, a traffic foundation and like your top of the funnel up in a really powerful way, but it's obviously not going to drive or typically it doesn't like drive purchases immediately. And I do right. think we've entered a world where you kind of have to have a lot of things in tandem. So it's very hard to differentiate them. People need to see, especially for a considered high price, considered purchase, like a credit card they need, they're going to need to see it quite a few times before they decide to pull the trigger. Um, very cool. Now I'm curious, what is one unconventional distribution hack that you're perhaps the most proud of that you think is, is clever and our listeners might get a kick from? Hmm. Man, there's a lot going on right now. I tend to have a, I, well, first I'll say just generally, I think like hacks are kind of, if the hack doesn't turn into a channel ultimately hmm. and is non-repeatable, that's okay. Obviously in the beginning you can do things that don't scale and sometimes you have to, to start like getting in the conversation. But I do think when you're swinging big like we are, you do need to like develop real profound sort of channels. Right. Um, some of the more creative stuff that we've done in the past with some of the companies that I've worked with tend to do with like very localized groups on the internet. So like a subreddit or like a Facebook group and providing consistent, I call it unique consistent value, a UCV. So you know, providing real value to your target customer, kind of meeting them where they're at. Often they're in like a group online of some kind, providing value to them and doing it consistently. An example would be if you're in a, if you're trying to sell to mommy bloggers and you have access to a mommy blogger Facebook group, you might not want to tell them all about your service. Instead, you might want to share the most interesting other products in the space every Friday with them every week providing regular constant value. And then when they're like, well, who keeps providing it for us? It turns out to be this awesome affiliate link platform that they all should be using. And so like providing a value to a target customer that is not directly related to what you're selling, you're not just promoting your product, but actually like mm. really doing the work to provide them value. Very cool. And I, I think you brought up a great point there. Hacks can be cool. They can be sexy. But at the same time, you want to make sure if you're really investing in something, it's repeatable. That's the key about acquisition. I've definitely never found anyone hack their way to real success. And I often think the stories that you read about in like the PR stories and the PR narrative around some of the companies that have done famously hack, I mm. tend to think that's more an example of their scrappiness than it really led to their like company success. Right. Like Airbnb didn't get so successful because they sold cereal. <laughs> right. <laughs> as cool as that story is. You know? Right. No, 100% agree. Moving on to our, our last two topics, fundraising and, and then operationalizing. For mm -hmm. fundraising, you raised an impressive seed round, $15.5 Company's pretty new. Obviously, you have an amazing track record behind you. I'm curious, for early stage founders that you know might be raising their seeds or pre-seeds for their first time, what's some advice that you could give them? Maybe one piece of advice that you think another founder on this pod may not have already said. Something different. I mean, 
Well, first, I'm not sure I would raise as much money as we have. We did raise like a part of it in a pre-seed round and like that builds up to a like seed round. And obviously when we did the public announcement, I kind of brought it all together. But I don't think there's any glory actually in raising a lot of money. And usually mm. that comes with higher valuations, which really means more pressure and less flexibility to build a big. So I'm not sure I would wish that or recommend it necessarily. It depends on kind of what you're building. The right. biggest piece of advice I always give that I think is the most important, I think, when it comes to fundraising is to find the true believers, not the skeptics. There's no, and so like, until you find someone who's like, heck yes, I'm in, it's very unlikely to raise money. In my experience, having pitched with probably nearly a thousand investors over like this company in my last company, some unbelievable amount of investors. And even with this company as a second time founder who has a great win, like under, like, I pitched a lot of investors. So like, I think there's this like mystery that it's like, oh, well, it's so easy for them. But the reality is everyone's pitching a lot of people, whether they tell you or not. Um, mm. But I think the biggest thing is I know within the first few minutes whether someone's going to invest or not. Have they done their homework? Right. Are they excited about your space? Have they, do they already have a kind of belief around the thesis of what you're doing? The, the investors I've seen who get most excited about any business are ones who are already essentially looking for a business like yours. And so, um, and you're never going to be able to convince someone that they should reconsider. <laughs> right? right. Like, and so that's my experience is always find that my, my advice is always try to find the true believers. Don't try to convince the skeptics. If someone says, this isn't for me, run out that door and go find someone who says, this is what I've been waiting for. I think that's phenomenal advice. Last question as we're wrapping up here, in terms of operationalizing your business and so making sure it's very efficient and your team is not wasting time, they're making the maximal impact they can, what's one tactic that you've leveraged or employed or put into your workflows that you think will pay dividends in the long run? Pretty obsessed with like how you build a company and like the process that underlies it, especially in a remote first setting. This is my first company building, first time building a business that's remote first, and I've never done that before. And we did in the midst of COVID, so we didn't have a choice and everyone is everywhere. So it's something we put a lot of thought and intention to because I'm a big culture person and I want us to have an awesome culture. And it's really hard when you're like not in the same place. I do think the unsexy answer is like actually caring about and creating great core values. I think that would be my unsexy answer. I think. A lot hmm. of companies kind of know they should do that, but like don't get around to it. But I tend to think that if you do it right and you spend a lot of time and it's true to the kind of business you want to build, that that can actually like underlie everything you end up doing in the future in a really powerful and important way. So I think core values are key for a very, very, very specific tactic. I think you have to be clear around the expectations for each platform. In fact, I teach the productivity 101 course to everyone where I share with them my insane like productivity tactics, which I think you would appreciate and on every one of the channels. But I always point to at the end, here's how what we expect. If you're sending something over email, expect a response within 24 hours. If you send something over Slack, don't expect a response immediately. That's like a text or a call. Something really, truly urgent has a different place for it. And so I think like the levels of urgency tied to the platform so that people know what to expect is really kind of crucial to frankly protect people from just sitting in Slack all day, which is like my nightmare, you know, you could be <laughs> sitting in email all day. Now it's in Slack. Right. 
That's, I think that's amazing advice. Awesome. I think that we're almost at time here. Derek, thank you so much for all your words of wisdom. Just as we wrap up, Derek, are you hiring? Is there anything you'd like to plug on the pod? Yeah, sure. No, this is a lot of fun. The biggest thing is just to go check out nestwell.com uh, and sign up for that wait list if you have any interest in what we're building. Sign up for our newsletter, The Nest Sightings, if, you're, if you like newsletters and like health and wellness. And follow me on Twitter if you want to reach out to me at Derek Flans. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Derek. It's been an absolute treat for me and all the listeners. Thank you, everyone, for listening to our audience. We'll see you next time on The Breakouts. Thanks. All right, and that wraps up today's episode. We really hope you enjoyed it. Now, just before I let you go, I wanted to reiterate one thing. We're trying to build the best podcast out there for aspiring entrepreneurs. And to do that, we need your help. The best way you can help us is by joining our Discord community. The link is in the description below. And then leaving us feedback. Tell us how we did. Tell us how we can improve. We're eagerly waiting to hear from you. Other than that, show us some love and follow us on Twitter at The Breakouts Pod. And I think that's everything I have for you. We'll see you next time on The Breakouts.